Thank you all for tuning in to episode four of the AFT Construction Podcast. Today, our special guest is Brad Forsgren. He is a principal and designated broker at Glenwood Development, which is a commercial developer in Mesa, Arizona. And as mentioned previously, our goal on this podcast is to bring value to all of our listeners, whether we speak of marketing, social media, building science, construction, or of course, real estate. Again, welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. I am here with Mr. Brad Forsgren. Hey, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So Brad is principal CFO and a designated broker at Glenwood and they're a real estate developer in Mesa, right? Yes. And they have some exciting things happening. And the reason we want to bring Brad on, he has a lot of experience in the financial side of commercial real estate uh, development. And so let's start this off. So Brad, when you guys are looking at raw land, what, what is the first step to create a pro forma? How do you um, vet that land to make sure it's a good investment deal? Well, uh, in real estate, as they say, location, 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 right? And so when we're looking for land, something that we're going to develop, we're going to go explore what the demand in the area is, so population based on other services that are being provided out there. We're going to look at things uh, like the demographics, uh, the population, income levels. Stuff. So how do you find that? I mean, are there certain resources or websites? Are you guys working with other brokers? I mean, how do you have a good feel for what the income or need in that area is? Yeah, there are, there are third-party groups that will, will track that kind of information um, where we can go look at again, populations and traffic counts and kind of look at an area that is likely to have demand, underserved. And so we, we can kind of look at uh, avoid analysis to see what kind of uses that are not in the area. And there are several groups out there that track that kind of information. So I know one thing in speaking with you and working with you in the past is you guys are also looking at like traffic corridors, right? So you're looking at how many vehicles are going through an intersection, um, neighboring commercial developments, what the need is. I mean, all that's a factor. Yes. Yep. So, so it's not always population because sometimes you might have an intersection that's sort of a funnel that pushes a lot of traffic through it. And that's valuable as well. Because I know that was the case. There was a project in Mesa, and it, it's a high corridor where people are leaving Mesa, heading up north, you know, up to the rim and Payson. And so, if I understand correctly, one of the reasons you want that intersection is because of all that through traffic, you know, people going out yep. of town on vacation. Yep. yep. I, the intersection you're talking about has fifty to 60,000 cars a day. And based on its proximity to the Indian Reservation and even the traffic, or sorry, the, the population there might not normally have that kind of traffic, but because... Uh, because of its proximity to the freeway and having to go several miles one way or the other uh, to get to the freeway, this, there's a lot, of, a lot of traffic at that intersection and therefore a lot of eyeballs and a lot of opportunities uh, for, for operators. So. Well, I'm sure that helps you attract tenants too, right? Because whether they're uh, a Circle K, you know, a, a, a gas station, you know, with a convenience store or a grocery store, I'm sure that adds appeal to all them with all that traffic. Absolutely. Well, well, let me ask you this then. So when you're looking at raw dirt, I know that was an existing shopping center that we discussed, but when you're looking at a raw piece of land, what is, you know, how do you figure out whether it's county or municipal? Well, um, I mean, honestly, Google Maps is pretty slick. We can, we can find out what is, you know, what is part of a particular municipality versus county land, and that gives us a, an indication of which which governing body we're going to be working with, which authority we're going to need to get to develop. Yeah. Which one's easier? Uh, the county is almost always easier to develop uh, with than a city. Uh, the city has a general plan and they have signage guidelines and uh, usually a, more, a lot more structured than a county, but uh, it just depends. 
So when you're working with the city and they have, uh, you know, they have a pre-zone, right? They kind of have an idea whether they want the corner or piece of land to be industrial, residential, commercial. Um, how open are they with different ideas you have as a developer? Say it's already zoned for a commercial. How open are they to work within a game plan to fit your tenants and future end users? You know, I, usually the municipalities are pretty great. They, uh, you know, they, they want to see their city improved. They want to see services provided. Tax dollars. They want to see tax dollars. And so usually they're pretty good to work with us. We really are on the same team trying to provide those services and, um, you know, j just trying to help the, the community, right? And we're, we're a part of that bigger plan as well, and, and we're willing to work with those guys. And, and, you know, they'll have certain setback requirements and trying to control flow of traffic. And uh, we, we definitely work with them on that stuff. So I know when you're working in commercial development, you know, there's a regulation in every city, you know, depending on how many square feet of office or end user, you have to have a certain amount of parking spots per sure. square foot. You have to have, they only allow a certain amount of drive through So how do you optimize that? I know there's a property in Chandler that you guys were very successful to get four drive throughs I mean, how did that come about where most municipalities will let you have two and yet you guys got four? Well, you know, times have changed um, with, with Amazon and a shift to online sales. Um, the, the cities recognize that as well. And so, you know, a, a building with a drive-through may not be as big as another building, and so we can use some of that space to create the drive-through, and they realize that the demand for the drive-through and convenience is there. And so, in this case, yeah, the city of Chandler was willing to work with us and give us give us those additional drive-throughs based, based on demand and what, what they want to see developed and those tax dollars and, and everything there. And and, and does, when you're able to get a drive-through for the end user tenant, I mean, that puts a little premium for their space, right? Because now they can optimize more revenue, more cars. And right. Again, in the past, we, we might have looked at an intersection and said, hey, let's do 20,000 square feet of retail here. Well, that, that, that number might be cut in half now. And we're going to say, hey, we're going to go fewer or less, of, less square feet, uh, more drive-throughs. And that seems to be what the demand is right now. And... As you look at retail, there, there has been a major shift. Um, you know, you could get goods and services at retail. Um, services you can't buy online. And so those... So explain that a little bit. Like, what are some services that you've worked with or that people are in high demand? Well, you, you can't get a taco online. You can't get a haircut online or your nails done. And so... Or your dry cleaning. You know, all of those things are difficult. So, so where goods, you know, if you're buying a pair of shoes or you're buying a watch or... You know, a lot of that retail where you're buying goods, a lot of that has has uh, has shifted to something that's online. Not all of it, but but a lot of it has. But on the services end of things, it's stronger than ever. People want to go and and receive those services, have an experience, and and so we see that as stronger than ever, and and, and that's where retail is really thriving right now. Well, it's really smart to kind of understand how the market change. I mean, we're dealing with this every day. There's advances in technology. There's conveniences, and you can just see people's attention span change. So you have to almost be on the forefront to understand people's buying habits and what's bringing them to each location. Um, so, so with that said, as we're looking at an intersection, so we, we let's take this one in Chandler that we're working on. You got four drive-throughs. So, how do you come up with a game plan with the city to understand what that end user will be? Because if you're dealing with ten acres of land. How are you proportionally laying it out to know you're going to have tenants for each space, you know, for the 
Right. So a lot of times it's just uh, you know the, the sheet of paper. You print out the the, the site plan, the basic, and it's it's kind of matter unorganized, and you start drawing a little bit, and you kind of consider what kind of uh, visibility corridors you need, what kind of visibility from the street, and you know certain certain paths or parcels will need a certain amount of frontage, and you know where you can have uh, where's the traffic going to flow as well. And so as you consider that flow of traffic and, and view corridors and and whatnot, you kind of you start playing it around. It's it's a little bit of trial and error, but you know you start laying it out and you keep moving things around until you find something that meets all your needs. And I know one thing you made a note of as we we're talking beforehand is you had said that there's a lot of just like any industry, it's a relationship industry. So you have to build relationships with certain vendors, whether Chase Bank or Subway or Main Grocer. So you kind of have a feel of certain tenants that you're working with that may end up yeah. occupying this location. It, it, it's pretty rare for our group anyway to go out and buy land speculative, speculatively. We're, we're usually working with groups ahead of time that we feel like will want to be in that area and we're going to bring them with us. We're going to work with them to get them there. And so, yeah, we, we know what their needs are going to be. Hey, this one has a stacked drive-through and is going to need a little extra space. Well, let's let's build that in. And we're working with, yeah, a Subway or a Chase Bank or a, you know, a whoever it might Dental be. Dental office, whatever it may be, that you already yeah. have in your back pocket, if you will. Yep, yep. So we, we, we try to, you know, market these things as early as on as possible so that so we can plan that ahead of time. Because you also attend, if I understand, you and your staff, you guys will attend a show in Vegas, right? And at, at this show is where there's a lot of these big companies that are looking to expand and are looking for certain demographics to build new locations such as Dollar Tree or sure. Whole Foods. Absolutely. So how are those relationships built at these conferences and at these conventions? Sure. So you're referring to ICSE, which is uh, in the Las Vegas Convention Center every year. And, you know, and there, there are other conventions year-round as well where brokers get together and landlord rep, tenant rep, you know, all, all of these relationships are forged and strengthened through meeting face-to-face -face and and, uh, and connecting uh, you know, through various forms of communication throughout the year, but absolutely to meet the demands of uh, owners and developers and, and making those connections with tenants. And uh, we're, we're, always, we're always working with those relationships, trying to anticipate their needs and, and accommodate them. So let's sidestep this for a minute because, Brad, you're kind of alluding to this. So, you know, one big thing for any company to be successful is to bring value, right? You bring value to your, your client. And then through that, that's how you grow your business. And sure. so I know one thing for you guys is, let's take Dollar Tree. I know you've worked with a lot of Dollar Trees throughout the country. So one of your strengths is as you build that relationship, you're not only developing here in Mesa, but it's also out of state. So you're doing that pro forma and analysis on other intersections around the country and helping them with their whole game plan, right? Walk us through that yes. process, how that yes. would go. Because you're not self-performing construction, but you're managing that. So how does yeah, that process so work? We, we we approach it from a variety of ways and, and often we see the real estate first and understand that this is going to be the spot and we can see that and have a vision for that. But then other times, um, you know, some of these dollar stores, um, including the one you've mentioned there, we, we will talk to them and they'll tell us where they want to be because they've run their own analysis and they, they figure out their spacing and their, and their demographics and they know right where they want to be and say, Hey, put us, put us within a mile of this intersection. And then we go out and find the specific piece of dirt and, and, um, so you're almost turnkey when they when they enlist you to go forward. Then you're finding the piece of land, you're negotiating that piece of land, you're getting the contractor involved to now go build it ground up and work on that timeline Absolutely. to get them in. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's 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 a variety of things. Um, so, 
so yeah, we're, we're helping them very specifically from, from day one, figure out, land that location, and then until they open for business, they're, we're, we're helping them every step of the way there. So. so now as we divert back, so we're going to this raw piece of dirt. So you've already looked at, there's some existing pocket listings, if you will. You have some relationship with vendors. You kind of know want to be at this intersection. You start working on, on rates and stuff. When do you start marketing that, that piece to the public? I, you know, is it simultaneous with working with the zoning? Do you already have a plot plan first, a good idea of how, many, how much square footage you have out there? When's the right time to start marketing that with as other brokers? As soon as possible, right? Uh, as soon as possible. And, and, and sometimes, you know, because of these tenant relationships, we're, we're going out to, you know, we're, we're, making, we're taking more of a, a sniper approach than a shotgun approach here. We're, we're, we're calling specific people who we know have interest there. But, you know, later you put a sign out on the property and everybody can find you. Uh, but there's, there's also uh, a variety of technologies to be used to, to advertise as well. So, and then of course the broker network is, is uh, instrumental in helping us to, to get the word out also. So you have to build that network, right? You have to have those brokers that you're networking with that are representing certain vendors and certain customers. And, and each one comes with their own specification. So I know on a raw dirt, when you're dealing, you're putting together a budget of off-sites, on-sites for the construction, just getting the pad ready. And then there's options there. You could have uh, a land lease, you can have a pad sale, or you can have developer by owner, right? You own it, you, sure. and then you're the landlord. Sure. So walk us through each one of those. So when a, when a company comes in, what would be a company that would want a land lease? And what would be the advantage for them to have that? Well. Every once in a while you get, uh, most often groups that can buy and afford to buy and come in and buy their own land, like to buy the land and do their development, but there are some- Like an in and out right? Is uh, in and out sure. someone that would come sure. in and buy their own land? And, and, the, and certain companies will say, hey, we only do land purchases and we only build on our own. Now occasionally you get a landowner who says, well, I'm, I'm, not, gonna, I'm not gonna sell, I wanna, I'll only lease. And so then you have kind of a common ground where you find an agreement and so you can do a ground lease you know, maybe it's $80,000 a year, $100,000, $120,000 a year, and you are only leasing the ground, and then that uh, tenant or end user will come construct everything themselves, and as a landlord, you're just, you're just leasing them the land. And how long do those leases typically last for a ground lease? Uh, typically, you'll see ground leases go for about 20 years, and then include some options, maybe four or five-year options on top of that. And the reason with the, with the ground lease, the tenant's going to want to have control of that property for longer because the improvements they're put, putting on that property, Very expensive. they're expensive and they revert back to the owner of the land when, when the ground lease is over. So what they need to do is they need to get their, their value out of it, right? If they're going to build a new structure, they're going to, they're going to want to be controlling that thing or control it for 40 years if they can. So, you know, 20 year initial term, four or five year options. Whatever they built day one, that now they've used it for 40 years or controlled it for 40 years. So. so so typically, and we'll just use this as an average, so you have a ground lease, let's say, just to make it the math simple, it's 120000 a year. They're paying you as the developer 10000 a month, right, to, to have for that ground lease for a 20-year lease with an option, but they're actually paying for their own vertical construction. That's correct. And so your responsibility as a landlord would to bring in the horizontal tie-in. So you stub into the property, and then they're responsible to take it to wherever their building is? Maybe, 
maybe. That's all negotiable. So they, they may pay for those improvements, even though they're horizontal, they may pay for them, or, or it could be the landlord. It's, it's negotiable at that point. So, so like everything, there's a little push and pull yeah, with any, sure. any real estate negotiation. Sure. sure. So yeah, but, but you'll see that often on the ground leases where yes, the, the, the owner of the land will come in and stub utilities and make some basic improvements and kind of tee it up as a pad that's ready to go. So same thing, I mean, not with the utilities, but if you're looking at the, uh, you know, asphalt and parking stripes and dumpster, I mean, sometimes same thing, sometimes you'll put it as a developer, sometimes they'll take on their ground lease that yes, portion. Yes, and it kind of depends what's adjacent to it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got six or seven different pads that have been site planned, someone has to coordinate it all, right? And so, I mean, if it's just a one-off, then, then I suppose whoever's developing it could just do everything on their own as is. But where there's, you know, like we discussed in Chandler, where there's you know, six or seven lots or parcels all adjacent to each other, there's gotta be coordination. And so in a case like that, absolutely, there are gonna be common drives and utilities that come in and, and takes that coordinated effort from the developer. So then the other option would be a land purchase, right? So you have, even though you own, let's just say 10 acres, there could be a tenant that comes in and says, hey, I want this acre, this pad for myself. Sure. So they could negotiate a certain purchase and then, um, you know, let's say it's 500,000, right, for that pad, but now they own that, right? So how do you work that out with the zoning or is it complicated to piece that part out to a certain end user? No, it can absolutely be sold, but as was mentioned, there's, there's common area often, common drives, easements, utilities, there's, there's stuff that has to be shared Maintained. Mm -hmm. and, and, and common area, and so uh, CC&Rs uh, will, will dictate the relationship between adjacent parcel owners, and so they're just, it's an agreement ahead of time between parcel owners that, that everybody agrees to abide ahead of time. And, and so how does that work? Let's say the budget for the CCNRs is, let's just say it's 100000 a year to maintain the property. It's not going to be that much. But if we throw that out there, depending on how much land they own, is that the percentage they put in typically? That's the most common way probably is a, is a pro rata share of land ownership. Sometimes um, it, it can be demand-based if somebody's using trash cans more than others or uh, more demand on parking than others and their parcel is larger. It can be based on parking stalls. It can be based on square footage of the building. Parcel size, there's, there are a lot of ways to carve it up, but. So how do you manage that as a developer? Now you have all these end <laughs> users and some may say, hey, my neighbor's using this much and we're not. I mean, how do you manage all those personalities? Yeah, yeah. and most likely it is likely to be a pro rata share. But, but the thing is those CCNRs go in early. So, so they know when, what they're getting they, into. When they come in, they know what they're getting into and typically it's gonna be, there's gonna be a manager uh, who, who really who takes on, takes on that responsibility and, and gets everybody on the same page. So. so when you're working on a land sale, are you typically ever involved in the vertical construction or is, when they buy in the land, are they typically self-performing construction? So occasionally we'll do a build to suit. They come in and, and uh, there's, we may do the vertical construction, the building, we, we may do a turnkey. They, we may help them get all fixturized and put all the tenant improvements in it and hand it to them ready to operate. And, and in that case, I mean, we took on the role of developer, but we're not landlord. And uh, you know, we, we charge a fee for those services, but we can absolutely allow somebody to, to own it at the end of the day, and they can own everything, and, it, and it's theirs. So that's when you're acting almost as a consultant or owner's rep, sure. project manager, whatever the term may be, and you're managing the contractor sure. to help them get to that end goal so they're not dealing with that headache. Absolutely. And again, you're bringing value, right? That's how you build sure, that relationship. Sure. 
So now let's talk about the third portion that would go into raw land development, and that's where it's owner, right? So you actually are going to keep the pad, and you're going to manage the construction vertical in-house, and then you're going to find tenants for each suite. Sure. So, And that, that could be single tenant, you know, very similar to the build-to-suit where, hey, instead of them owning it, we just keep it. We made it turnkey. We built it out for them, maybe single tenant, and... Uh, and, and, and there are tenant in a single tenant building or there's multi-tenant buildings and you're going to get uh, a variety of tenants in a single building. So then when you're working with those tenants, you know, you hear the term in the industry, gray shell, white shell. So, so what's the difference? What would the user, if, if I'm renting or looking at leasing from your, a building that you are developing and I'm going to be renting one of the suites, what does that mean for me if you're going to provide me a gray shell or white shell? So gray shell simply is unfinished. Uh, vanilla shell or white shell. So real, going back to gray though, are there minimums? I mean, we know that the exterior structure will be in. Do you have to have mechanical in, you know, an AC? Do you have to have a working bathroom or is it a straight? Gray shell, gray shell would be considered bare bones. You, okay. you just, you may not even have a slab. No Might plumbing. just be dirt because you don't be, know what the user is. Even, yeah. even with a shell building, you may have dirt inside the building. Just because you don't know where the plumbing's going in the drains and if it's a restaurant or Absolutely. bathrooms. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, it's a pretty generic term, gray shell. So could, could you have an in-between? Sure. But, but gray shell is essentially unfinished. And vanilla shell, in contrast, you're going to have uh, drywall taped, ready for paint. You're going to have likely have flooring in, plumbing in. Uh, operating fixed, bathroom. Bathroom. Uh, HVAC that's in. And you'll have your drops, your roof curbs, you'll have your ducting. It's nearly ready. You can put your finishing touches, your branding, all that kind of stuff on it. But vanilla shell, uh, again, generically is, is nearly finished. So, so so what do you prefer if you're doing your own building? You know, I've seen a lot where you come into a tenant space and you'll know like the back 30 feet, let's say there's no concrete installed in the front because typically that's where the patrons are especially in a restaurant, you know, and in the back is where you have to put the bathrooms, you have to put the FF&E and equipment. So sure. would you prefer to provide a tenant? Is it easier to have all dirt, you know, no concrete, or do you prefer to have at least a patch out for them to do their own undergrounds? Yeah, I think it's most simple uh, to, have, uh, to have some dirt there in the back where they can, they can be creative. And, and not have to sock they, it. Right, Yeah. right. Uh, but it just depends. Every deal, again, is a little different, and... Um, depending on what you think that space is going to get used for, would dictate that. You know, if it's going to be office space for somebody, then then maybe it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't need to have all the same plumbing needs. So just depends what you what you see that space being. So, so you have a good game plan when you're doing a building and it's a multi-tenant building, and let's say you're going to have six suites. You try to have a good idea whether it's going to be a realtor office, you know, accounting office, or restaurant, Starbucks. Yeah, you have to be able to anticipate a little bit what it's going to be, um, you know, based on the parking that you have or based on what the city's going to allow. You know, not every, not all six spaces are going to be restaurants, right? And so some of those are going to be, you know, a haircutting salon or, or an office in, that sells insurance or dry cleaner or nail salon or something like that. And so, so yeah, you kind of get a feel and you know, you might put a building together that has some kind of some default sized suites, maybe in 1,200 square foot blocks. And so, you know, you might find a tenant that comes in at 2,400 square feet, or maybe there's one at 12. And, uh, and then you have to be flexible because then you find out, hey, somebody needs uh, exactly 3,000 square feet. And uh, you have to understand what that leaves you with in the building. 
and is that a usable space? Because if it, if it isn't, then, then you need to rework what you're thinking, so. And how does it work? You know, most, I think, industry standard is roughly $45 a square foot, right? As a tenant comes in, is that industry standard? Is it 35? What are you seeing right now in the current market? You know what? I'm going to say it depends. Um, you know, 45, in my mind, might be what it would really cost to get somebody in and up and running. You know, as a landlord, would we be willing to contribute 100% of that and make it turnkey and open that tenant for business? It all, it's all a function of risk, right? So, you know, if this is a, a first-time restaurant, you know, husband, wife coming in, first time. Trying With no to, track record. Right. So you're going to want to have the, you have to mitigate that risk. in the game, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's 10 bucks a foot that you're contributing. Maybe it's 20. It, it, it really just depends. If you have a larger name brand, national chain type tenant, you really want to have them there. Uh, represents a lower risk, then sometimes you're willing to give a little bit more to get them there. And, and they're willing to pay higher rents, and both parties believe that those rents can be paid. And uh, where you're looking at somebody with less experience, um, they may agree to those higher rents, but may or may not be able to pay those higher rents. And so it's just a higher risk situation. So, you know, I wouldn't say that 45 is a, is, a, is a standard. I think that's a good estimate of what it would really cost maybe to get somebody open for business, but how that's shared between tenant and landlord is Tiffers. up for negotiation, depending on uh, some of those, those items we discussed. So. so if I'm looking at this from a user mindset, you know, the more um, project history or company history that I have or more locations where I have some credibility, then it will help my negotiating Experience, with, the, um, with the landlord. Financial strength are all factors in, in risk for the landlord, right? And so... And it can differ by market. It's, it's interesting. I was speaking with a company in California, and they are a big restaurant chain, super successful, and they were telling me in California that they get $0. They have yet to have one project where they got $1 from the landlord, which surprised me. And so I don't know if that's just market, because in Arizona, that's not the case. Yeah, it does vary. And, you know, and some tenants actually pride themselves on not taking an allowance from a landlord. Uh, Wouldn't it be advantageous, or does that affect how they negotiate their lease rates? It, it does. Absolutely, it does. So, yeah, I mean, you, you want to pay $30 per square foot with a $20 allowance, or I could give you no allowance and charge you $26 per square foot. So, clearly, you know, do you need some free rent for a period to kind of get open and, and, and ramp up your revenues? And if you're looking for free rent, then maybe it's less than tenant improvement allowances. So there's, there's give and take everywhere there. And uh, absolutely a tenant that has the strength to come in and say, hey, I'll, I'll put all my own improvements in. That's, that's, that's pretty low risk. They're going to come spend $80,000, $100,000 in tenant improvements to improve that suite they're in. They're pretty low risk, right, to, to not pay rent. And so I, in most cases, I'm willing to take less rent. And yeah, because you don't have to have an escrow account for constr uh, construction funds, right? You're not having to put aside money for future right, right. TIs to put towards right. the tenant. And if, I, and if I was the one to put that eighty dollars to $100,000 into the building and on the chance that the tenant isn't able to pay rent... Now you're on the hook. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. there's, there's usually a balance there. And we like to see some kind of balance where, where the tenant has some kind of skin in the game, where... They, they've made a financial commitment to this being successful. So they don't fold and run, and then you're on the hook for paying for their construction to get in, That's and right. then they're not paying rent, and they're gone. That's right. And, so and you it, have to pay to do it again for the new tenant. Right. And so it's just it's, it's a balanced approach. Um, 
we understand that some guys need a little help to get in and get going, and that that's okay. And and we, we can help and do help and try to find that right balance and still do it at numbers that we believe they can be successful. For us, it's the relationship's important. Uh, it's important that they are successful as a tenant because if they're not successful, then, then we're not successful. And so um, I, I really enjoy being an owner developer because we're able to connect directly with these tenants and have these relationships directly. We're not just a broker who tries to stick somebody into a spot, collect a fee, and then move on. Um, we're, yeah, we're you're in, massaging we're, them, you're building that relationship yeah, and for future. We're, we're in it for the long haul. It's not just about getting a lease signed. We need these guys to be to, to run a successful, be successful business so that they can make money and, and that they can pay rent and that we can do right by our investors. So. So I know there's a term out there, triple net, right? So that, that could be a form of rent. So explain what that means when someone has that mentality if they're paying $24 a square foot triple net. What does that entail? What does that mean? Right. So in that case, the $24 would be a base rent. And on top of that, you would have property taxes, insurance, and utilities. common area maintenance. Mm-hmm. And, and utilities too, cams, right? Sometimes they may have shared utilities. The, the, cams, the cams would be considered part of the common area. And so... You know, it's, it's interesting as you differentiate between an office lease versus a retail lease. Many office leases are what's considered a gross lease, and it's it's just a flat number. So define that a gross lease. So in your example, where you gave twenty four bucks per square foot, it mm-hmm. may be another six dollars in shared fees, which would be the, the their pro rata share, a tenant's pro rata share based on the square footage of their suite, a pro rata share of property taxes, insurance, and cams or common area maintenance including those utilities you described. So, so what that means, just to define that, so the $24 would go toward a landlord, right, to rent the space. And, and maybe another $6. And another $6 goes to towards those other, those other expenses. Kitty fund, if you will, or escrow account that's yes. paying taxes, insurance, yep. and the camps. Those dollars are held in trust, held in an escrow account, and... And all the neighbors are participating manager. in that. Yep, everybody pitches in, and, and there is some some risk to the tenants that property taxes go up, that insurance goes up. If there so are, the rent can fluctuate. If there are additional costs, if we need porter service or parking lot sweeping uh, to, to increase because... Roof because, repairs. Yeah, there, there's, there's stuff in that maintenance that could go up or down based on, based on how busy the center is and, and the needs of the center. Whereas a gross lease, um, you could just say, hey, it's 30 bucks a square foot. And you would say, well, one was 24 plus six, that's 30. Well, a gross lease at 30 is capped, though. It's not subject to change. And so it doesn't, doesn't matter what the parking lot looks like or how much trash is being picked up or how often they're sweeping or cleaning or who runs the AC for longer. It's a, a gross lease. It's, it's just capped. It's the number. It's, it's, it's a solid number. And, that, and you see that most often in office-type settings where they have more shared utilities in retail. Most often you're going to get your own electrical panel and water meter and those utility costs are going to be, go directly to you most often. And and then on the shared ones, you're going to end up with a triple net lease. And, so that's, if, and that's definitely most common in retail. So if the end user in retail is paying their own electrical, paying their own water because they have individual meters for their space, they're typically going to be on a gross lease, not a triple net. No, it, it is. For, for retail, it's almost always triple net. So so the ones that are shared are the ones you can't split out. So mm-hmm. so their house panel that, that they're going to be running for, for their own suite that's pretty easy to divide out. If they need a water meter and they're a restaurant, um, that's pretty easy to, for that specific suite. 
insurance agent next door may not use a whole lot of water. But where it's, where it's uh, difficult to divide things out is you got parking lot lights, for example. That meter, you know, it's not specific to any one sweep. Or you have uh, a water meter for landscape. Uh, it's around. watering and then the maintenance to mow lawns. Right. So it becomes, it becomes common area. And again, that, that, that's just the difference between a triple net lease and a gross lease. And, and, and again, retail, it's, it's way more common to see the triple net lease and, uh, and gross on the office side. So although we started talking about tenant improvement, some of our listeners may not understand what that defines. So what is a tenant improvement as people hear that, weren't, that word or TI? Okay, so improvements are specifically part of the real estate. Um, when you put equipment or, or furniture, that kind of stuff inside a suite that's personal property, that's, that's not considered part of the improvement, but stuff that it is fixed, um, fixtures, walls, flooring, um, any, anything that's attached but makes it their suite or their business or all those improvements beyond the shell on the inside are those tenant improvements. And you could, you know, some tenant improvements would be changed if, if someone vacated a suite and somebody new came in, you know, they may change the tenant improvements to meet their needs. And so improvements are those, those real estate improvements, but they're, they're tenant specific. So, so again, somebody going into a particular suite is gonna have to have a setup uh, to look and feel a certain way and, and function in a certain way specific to them. And so that's, that, that, those are the tenant improvements. And again, as we mentioned, so with those tenant improvements, there are costs involved and you'll negotiate those costs depending on, you know, their, their credit and their history. So what are you seeing in the market? Does the market dictate what your responsibi responsibility is as landlord? Because as the market's healthy, are, is it more a landlord market? Is it more of a, uh, a lease market? You know, how does that yeah, change your negotiation? Yeah, the landlord or the tenant right now. You know, that's, that's tough to say. Um, it is supply and demand, right? Basic economics and, you know, tenants who can pay rent and have a national brand and who are seen as low risk have, have a pretty good position to be in right now. And uh, at the same time, real estate is scarce. And if you want to be in the best location, the A location, you're going to pay to be there. And so it's all a function of supply and demand. And uh, clear, clearly we're in a good market right now. Um, you know, there's compression on cap rates, interest rates are low, and that's a healthy seller's market for landlords um, and, and can cause the, the rates for tenants to go up. But I, I don't know that one tenant over landlord have the advantage right now necessarily. So it's not so much advantage because that's more dictated on location, right? Or value, how or, new the space is, how modern it is. Yeah, from Amenities. a landlord's perspective and then from the tenant's perspective is, yeah, how many locations do you have? How, what kind of experience do you have? How, how strong are you financially? And so it, it just becomes the right, the mix of, of those things uh, that will, you know, the supply and demand in those areas that will dictate. So we, you know, before getting into cap rates, you know, you hear the term class A space. So what is that like? How do you define you know, the classification of each space that does add value, it adds strength as a landlord, right, as you're finding tenants. What dictates that? Who evaluates that? Yeah, I, you know, I don't, it really is just a... Uh, is that just a term that marketers are using more, to try to inflate a, the value? It's more, probably more of a generic term. Um, you know, an A location would be that's in high demand with good demographics. Again, high population, high incomes, 
high education, uh, lots of traffic. And so with those kind of demographics you're gonna, and location and visibility, you're gonna be able to, in theory, conduct better business, right? And so, um, you know, you can get into different product types and, and uh, they can also do it on, based on property condition, if it's, if it's, if it's a new property and well-built and, and, and set up pretty nice, then, then you can describe that property as an A-type as well. But uh, I don't know that there's a hard, fast line. So. so how does it affect your game planning when you go into the city and they're telling you, maybe you're budgeting, you know, two main signage locations, right? And the city comes and says, well, you need to do four. And then they're making you change the drives or deceleration lanes and you gotta move transformers. I mean, how does that impact the budget as a city now is requiring you to have maybe a canopy out of steel or trellis? I mean, how does that impact your overall value and then the budget, of course? Sure. Well, of course, those are all items we try to anticipate. So we're not going in blind. We, we know ahead of time we have experience and have done it. So we have a really good idea of what the requirements are gonna be. Uh, you know, before we purchase the property, we kind of have scouted all that out, had a survey done, understand what the likely requirements are gonna be, what code is. And so ideally we've anticipated almost all of that. Uh, but, but sure, there's, uh, you know, we, we work with the cities and trying to put, you know, are we building the Taj Mahal or are we building something at the other end of the spectrum? And, and usually we're trying to find that right fit and work to put a nice product out, uh, nice to look at for people in the community, uh, works well for tenants that they can, they can get their name out there and uh, try to find that sweet spot. So explain to us then, you know, as you have a nice property, you had a good location, you know, there's, let's just call it class A, as we've been discussing, there's the term cap rate, which really affects the value. So what is the cap rate? How could we explain that to the listeners? Well, the cap rate or the capitalization rate is, is um, it doesn't really dictate pricing. It's really a way to measure the value one property compared to another. So cap rate, it's not like some index that you go, that as a percentage that you go look up somewhere that dictates the price. It really is a, a tool to measure one property against another. When you do property valuations on the residential side uh, or, or, or other property types for that matter, you're looking at well, what's the cost to build it or what does a comparable property look like uh, price-wise. In residential, you see the comparable property all the time. What's, what's the property go down the street for? Well, in commercial real estate, whether it's office or industrial or retail, which we spend most of our time in, uh, you're really looking at cash flow off of the property. So a property that produces $100,000 per year in cash flow, um, if it were to sell at a 10 cap, it would be a $1 million property in value. But you could take another property, let's say that produced one million a year and sold for 10 million, those two properties would both be 10 caps. And it's a way to compare that, you know, somebody paid a certain price for a property and their uh, cash on cash return would be equal to the cash rate or the cap rate. So again, in those couple examples there, pay $10 million for a property, get a $1 million cash flow from it every year, it's a 10 cap. So, so explain the difference, though, like if you have a seven cap okay. as that goes down. So, so what's interesting, uh, if, if you have this property that's a $10, you know, $10 million property, but it, it's going to kick off this million dollars a year, well, somebody came in and bid a 10 cap and offered the $10 million. 
Well, if, if an investor comes in and says, I'm willing to accept less than a 10 cap for, you know, I'm willing to accept a less than a 10% return on my money, one investor might come in and say, I'm willing to only accept a 9% return on my money. And then another guy comes and says, I'm willing to only go 8% on my money. And finally, a guy comes in and says, you know, I, this is such a great property and so such low risk, I'm willing to only make a 7% return on my money. Right? And so then what you do is rather, in this case, but the million dollars is the constant, right? The million dollars, the, the cash that comes out to the investor is the constant. So that what was maybe perceived as a $10 million property would go 11, 12, 13, 14 plus million um, as that cap rate lowers, the purchase price increases. And so they pay more for the property, cash flow of a million is the same, but their cash on cash return is now only 7% instead of maybe what the first guy bid at 10%. So as the cap comes down, seven, four, the, it increases that value. Yeah, and so, and so again, to, to add more context here, you know, you, you might have a multi-tenant building, um, you know, five or six different tenants in it, and let's say all of them are first-time business operators, not a lot of experience, not a lot of financial strength, and it's kind of in an obscure location. You know, someone might say, hey, I'll, I guess I'll pay you 10%, or 10, 10 cap, 11 cap, because it's fairly high risk, right? Obscure location, tenants aren't as strong, not as experienced. And on the flip side of that, you could go buy a McDonald's or a Dutch Bros or, you know, Starbucks. And those cap rates would be much lower. They might be like a four cap instead of a 10 cap. And that just means that the investor... It's less of a risk. To, less of a risk less of a risk, and so they say, hey, I'm willing to only accept a, four, you know, I only need a 4% return on my money. I get it. I'm bidding against other guys here, and I'm willing to take 4% return on my money, but I know it's going to be 4%. I'm not really risking tenants not paying rent. Yeah, because there's less risk. I mean, if you have a known entity, maybe it's a, a national grocer, maybe it's Starbucks, McDonald's that have a strong footprint and have a long history of performance, right? So there's less risk, so you That's can get right. a better value. That's right. And so again, this, this becomes a tool to compare properties of all sizes and types. And again, we're not, we're not looking at sales comps or construction costs. We're looking at cap rates, and that allows us to compare properties of different size, properties of different uh, you know, operating income, different cash flow coming out of them, but it's a way to compare. You could have office or retail. You could have a million dollars coming out or $100,000 coming out of the property and cash flow but it's a way to compare property to property. What kind of return is it generating cash on cash to the investor? And so, so you could look at a portfolio that's mostly made up of lower cap rate properties and that would be perceived as low risk and you know, higher cap rate properties would be, would be more risk, but better returns. It's a great explanation. So going back to that, when you look at, um, you know, if you're looking at purchasing an existing shopping center, um, are you looking at, you know, how many, uh, the, the percent of occupancy? Are you looking at how many, how long the leases are under contract? Because I know you purchased a project recently where the main tenant only had a year left, and so there's some risk involved. So how does that affect your negotiation and the purchase of that piece of property? Sure. So sometimes, I mean, the, the cap rate's not always going to hold true if, yeah, if there's some vacancy there. And so... There, there is a, a market segment that you would call value add, where you're looking at a particular property that has more vacancy, and so you're running your analysis on what could be, right, if you were to lease it up. And 
you know, yeah, we, we purchased a property that had a grocer in it. We knew that they were going to go dark, and, and they did. And we have to kind of run numbers ahead of time and forecast, okay, what are we going to be able to release this at? What kind of improvements are we going to have to do to get the next tenant in? And in all likelihood, it's going to be at a much lesser rate than... What the existing one was paying. That's right. And, and so, you may be losing 50% of your rent roll, right? I mean, you could be losing a big portion of that, so you have that's to... That's right. And that all factors in, um, you know, the... the property we recently purchased uh, you know they it was an eight million dollar loan that you know we ended up buying for the whole property for about three million and so we got value there right and so you got value go but there's risk too because now sure. you have to come into say a, a shopping center at 30 percent occupancy and now you're responsible to find that other 70 percent absolutely and but there's some time involved and and that's where we can create value and sometimes it's with vacancy sometimes we'd be we we might buy a property that has an extra pad an undeveloped pad on it and sometimes we'd buy a property that maybe it's 100 percent leased but the lease rates are low you know you look around the market and lease rates are 18 dollars per square foot triple net well this particular center they're paying between 11 and 12 and so over time we know that that'll come back to market rates and this will this is a really good buy because tenants are paying less than, than market and, and uh, at those numbers the risk is less or, or there's some room to have those rents raise over time and, and create some value in the asset. So as you're looking to bring value you know, and you're trying to get the center occupied and leased out, it, are there minimum leases? Is there a certain number that you always try to keep people at for terms as far as years? You know what? Um, th th there's not a minimum. Uh, we have done three-year leases before, I'd say five is most common, seven, 10, 15, 20 are, are kind of the most common. But when you're handing you know, a tenant new space that you've improved, usually the minimum to kind of recoup, to amortize those costs over time is, is five years. And depending on how significant those improvements are, if it's a restaurant with a lot of dollars put into it, you're gonna look and say, hey, that, that has to be at least a 10-year lease because we're trying to get our money back over 10 years and anything shorter than that and they go dark, then, then you haven't been able to recoup those costs. So how did you get involved in commercial real estate? I mean, was that a passion from a young age or how did you fall into this? Well, um, I was uh, in high school, I wanted to be a financial planner. And then I, I when I got into college, I jumped into Arizona State University's accounting program and loved accounting, loved the concept of understanding balance sheets and income statements and really wanted to understand the nuts and bolts of business, but I never really wanted to be a CPA. And so at the same time, while I was uh, going through school at ASU, I started taking real estate classes as well. And uh, anyway, eventually I attended a business forum at, uh, at ASU and ran into my, uh, what is now my current business partner. And he and I spoke then, and uh, he had created this successful company, and, and I've wor we've worked together now for about 18 years, and wow. uh, we've, we've got a great team here together. But again, for me, it was, it was about creating something, creating value, creating value for my, me and my family, uh, for my partners, for the investors, and to be able to work with the community and work with other entrepreneurs and help them to, to see their dreams through. It's... it's uh, there, there's some things that are repetitive and predictable, and I like that part of it, because then we have a we have a plan, right? But I but I really like the part of helping others to achieve their goals, and, and in that there's tremendous variety, and 
it's just it's just really great to to work with those groups and to see them have their uh, dreams fulfilled there. Well, it's interesting. I, I think there's a lot of similarities. You know, people ask, well, why are you in construction? Like, what's the, the purpose there? And we really enjoy that process. You see something being built. You see, you know, you can drive by there and see that project, whether commercial residential finished and see people happy in their home or at their commercial restaurant or space. And I'm sure it's similar for you in real estate. I mean, as you're developing shopping centers or bringing life to new ones that were once vacated, then now you can see the fruits of those labors. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. Well, Brad, I know that you guys fly under the radar, so you guys are pretty quiet here at Glenwood. So where can our listeners find you? Uh, Glenwood.com. Great. And what about you individually? I think you're on LinkedIn. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Not on the forefront of social media, but the reason we brought you on is, uh, you know, Glenwood is an extremely successful company here in Mesa. You guys provide a lot of value to the community, uh, have a great network of uh, brokers and tenants and I know we've crossed paths on many projects over the years and it's been an honor working with you guys. Well hey we've enjoyed working with you as well Brad and uh, AFT and the whole team there so thank you. Yeah thanks for joining us today appreciate it Brad. Thanks. Thank you all for tuning in to episode four of the AFT Construction Podcast. We we're super excited to speak with Brad Forsgren about commercial development and real estate and stay tuned for next week on episode five as we discuss sales. We're going to bring on Kirk Linehan who's worked for FootJoy, Travis Matthews, and Ping, and is now a top broker in Scottsdale, Arizona.